beautiful people. I'm Heat, host of Ordinary Chaos, where we explore the interesting side of ordinary. We often see famous people as interesting and not famous people as not interesting, but the truth is, we're all interesting if you ask the right questions. Today's guest is an artist, a not famous artist, talking about his process and his work. I thought he was fascinating and was sad the conversation ended so quickly. And I love that on the surface, he and I are very, very different. But as we talked, it turns out we have a lot in common. Let's get to it. Hello, Heat here with an artist today. I'm here with Father Nathan Castle OP, who has many credentials, but we're talking today mainly about his journey as an author. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I know you've written, published, well, I don't know how many you've written. You've published three books. I have. How did you get started in writing? I know that your profession or your calling is as a priest. That's right. I'm a Catholic priest. And much of the 36 going on 37 years of my priesthood has been as a campus minister, including at Arizona State for 12 years and at Stanford for seven. Writing has always been something that I did. I I had a really good training, even in elementary school about grammar and usage. And so expressing myself in writing was something that came easily because I was just well taught, had a good foundation early on. And then, you know, I was studying liberal arts in college and just about everything is writing. There aren't very many like true, false or fill in the blank in a a, a liberal arts curricula. So I did a lot of writing in uh, in both my undergrad and then in all of my theological studies was much more writing. My original college major was art. I was the guy that everybody went to in high school to have their posters made for their whatever they were running for, the football team. (laughs) One that I would make. And I learned really quickly that I wasn't, I didn't have the level of graphic art skill that other people did. And it really honestly wasn't my passion. It was just something to say when I was 18 or 19 going off to college. But then the artistic part of me didn't disappear. It just, it just shifted. And then the particular order that I belong to is called the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. That's the OP behind my name. So public speaking, preaching, teaching, became my primary art. So my media shifted from paints and markers and things to words. I had to write practical communications because I was a congregational leader, a pastor. You're always having to communicate a vision of what you're trying to accomplish. Or, you know, at the beginning of the year, you have a mission and vision for the year ahead. And then you have to give some sort of report to stakeholders about how we're doing, about what we said we were going to do. There's a lot of written communication that goes into being a pastor. And then around, I don't know, about 2006, I began to play around with the idea of writing a book about the Wizard of Oz. And I had a little bit of sabbatical time that year and got the first 12 chapters of an actual book written. And I really haven't stopped writing ever since. Excellent. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. This one was my first, and Toto to the Wizard of Oz as a Spiritual Adventure. I was interested in the childhood experience of growing up when the, the media world was three television stations and no ability to record anything. You just had to sit down in front of the TV and use the restroom during the commercials. <laughs> And the Wizard of Oz during my childhood was just this massive event that was promoted for a couple of weeks before it would come on each year. 
And it was the talk of everybody, grandparents and little kids and neighbors you didn't know that well. Nobody would watch that alone. It was really like a Super Bowl party before there was one. And I was just impressed with how this one movie had the power to galvanize people into communities and just thought, why does everybody care about the same thing? And and I knew that the Gospels were supposed to be that for Christian church people and I just didn't see us that excited about anything at church as much as we were about the Miser of Oz. So I, I just, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking one of these days, I'm going to explore that. And then I learned that it was seen by more people than had ever seen any other movie ever made. Oh, I didn't know that. And I thought, well, why in the world would that be? What are the universals that make it so appealing across time and space and demographics, all that? So that was the impetus of that book. And your other two books are similar to each other, but not so similar to that one. So how did that shift happen? Well, when I was at Arizona State, I was somewhere around maybe 15 years ordination by that time. I was in my early 40s. Uh, I'm now about to be 66. I had an experience on a retreat up in the mountains in northern Arizona with a group of friends. I was the retreat director. And during the first night of that retreat, I had a dream in the middle of the night that was somebody burning to death on the engine, like on the radiator of a car and shouting. And I woke up from it knowing that it wasn't my dream material, that it was what I call a contact dream. Somebody was in my space, in my head, <laughs> saying, screaming. <laughs> so I woke up from it and I said a prayer and and I uh, went back to sleep. And in the following morning, I got together with a friend who was on that retreat, who I knew had spiritual gifts that might be handy and said, could we go into prayer and, and see what we can do to help this suffering person? And she said, would it be, he really wants to talk to you. Would it be okay if I let him? And I knew that she had the gift that w- could facilitate speech. And uh, so did I, but she let him talk and we listened to his story and found out what he was I asked, what can we do for you? What is it you want? And he said uh, he had died a long time ago and his wife was now 40 years older and she was dying of cancer and he wanted to greet her when she comes, but I can't the way I am. And I said, okay, well, then we need to figure out what that is. And that's what we did. We helped him over a few weeks, one session, once a week and got him ready to do that. That book is called, or this first of them is called Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over. And that one uh, was 2017, I think. And then 2019, we came out with the second in that series. We got rid of the word stuck. Uh, The subtitle was helping stuck souls cross over. We kept the word on the cover, but we crossed through it because we discovered that many of these people that come in the night and ask for help aren't as much stuck as they uh, just needed extra help because they died sudden, violent, traumatic deaths. And most people don't. Even I think it's only a small portion of those who do die sudden violent deaths, but a few of them need extra help of the kind that my prayer partners and I provide. Do you know what would cause that? A lot of different things. I've been doing this uh, unusual work for about 25 years now. So I've seen a lot of different things over time. One of the things is trauma looping. Have you ever been in a trauma loop or perhaps know somebody who has PTSD or has said some shock to the system that repeats itself in their imagination? Yes. Very often painfully so. And it's for some folk that's worse at night because they can sort of control it when during the day, but then they're at the mercy of their unconscious when they go to sleep and sometimes have that happen. 
Well, anyway, sometimes they've sort of looped in part of their trauma and have had to try to find their way out of it and get back to some sort of uh, ability to control their thoughts, uh, even after leaving the body. Sometimes it's anger, deep regrets, unfinished business of one kind or another, sometimes just fear. By the time they find my prayer partners and I, they've been vetted and they've been through something like uh, after-death counseling or at least some sort of caring continuum where people are there and know what you need and try to provide it without being bossy. They make you know that, listen, this is holding you back and we want only the best for you. And we'd like to encourage you to pay attention to this, especially truth. Truth is just hugely important. And sometimes we can create stories in our head that are exaggerations and move us away from truth. And uh, I've just found that telling the truth is really important. And some of these people just need to arrive at a deeper truth. The whole thing is so fascinating. I think so. I loved it. Not a conversation that you have with just anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you go looking for, for odd characters, don't you? Not on purpose, but I suppose so. I thought you did. Uh, <laughs> I think they're just what interests me. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have another one in the works on this topic or any other? I do. I find that these afterlife interrupted books largely write themselves because of the process that we use to help these people along. For example, I've had what I call contact dreams each of the last two nights. So I have a little journal that I keep on the nightstand. And if one of these comes along, I write it down as quick as I can. I wake up from it and I write it down as quick as I can. And then pray for the person and go back to sleep. And then I have prayer partners during the pandemic these last two years. A lot of that is switched over to Zoom instead of person to person in person. But we arrange meeting times where it takes us about 30 to 45 minutes normally to help somebody make the passage that, that, that they've come to us to, to make. And I have an app on my phone that just records the session. And at the end of it, I just hit a button and it sends it off to a transcriptionist who listens to it and sends me back a Word document. I clean up the Word document and store them. So I, I have the gist of chapters already. And then I'll have to do is explain why I chose this person and, and I'm telling this story and how I think it might benefit the reader. I have another wild idea that I'd have you ever read the whole of the Gospel of John? I don't think I've read the whole thing. When you read any of the Gospels at one sitting as, as a coherent document, the way that we read most things, they're telling a similar story about Jesus, but they tell it in very different ways. And John's Gospel, I think, my thesis is that it was written as Greek theater. And I would like to get with somebody maybe here at the University of Arizona who knows Greek theater and run that by them and maybe collaborate on writing a book on John's gospel as Greek theater. I love theater and I don't have much background in it, a little bit of being in plays and I've directed a couple of plays years and years ago. I might do that. I don't know. But there's another of these afterlife uh, interrupted books coming too. And then we spoke in arranging this that I'm interested in doing what you're doing. I'd very much like to podcast. And so there's a lot of thought work creativity that goes into, you know, zeroing in on what your message is and how you might convey it. So that's another creative work. So you've got no shortage of potential projects in the works. I always have lots of them. That's been a lifestyle all my life. It's funny because when 
when one of the people who have died, I don't call them dead people because they're not dead. They have died, but they are living uh, differently than they did before their, the death of their body. But when they come into me, we're co-conscious and I'm not overridden or entranced or anything like that. And the allowing them in, I only do that after securing the space with prayer. I would not just allow anybody randomly into me, but I do that with safeguards. And when I do, they have to do something like enter in. And one guy said um, it took him a while to get in because he was having to step over a bunch of clutter. Like he was walking, coming into me with like a <laughs> sidewalk where there were roller skates and bicycles. <laughs> and I, I know that's true of me. Sometimes I just have so many thoughts and so many incompletes. Like, what does your uh, computer screen look like? Just the desktop. You know what? It's not covered, but that's because I made a folder called clutter. Oh, Okay. And so every now and then when there's too much, I just move stuff into the clutter folder. But if you open that, there it, is. it looks like my desktop used to. All right. My uh, my <laughs> sister scolded me and said, your computer's running slow. It, it, it takes it longer to boot up if you have all this open stuff. I, I don't have that much right now, but sometimes I do. Sometimes it just is a big mess. And I think, well, that's because that's what I look like inside. <laughs> and it's it's not garbage. It's not that I'm a hoarder that can't get rid of anything. It's just that I have a lot of interests. And I feel like sometimes if I put something away, I'll forget. And it, if I leave it sitting out, uh, it'll remind me that it's still waiting for me to do something. That sounds familiar. I think as Elizabeth Gilbert had the notion that an idea comes to you and you can nourish it. And if you don't, it goes to somebody else. That could be. There are several that I've had that apparently there were no other takers for because they're they're still here. (laughs) Well, you seem to be a very available spirit, you know? Yes. So aside from moving your meetings with your pair partners to Zoom, did the pandemic have other effect on your work? It caused almost all the travel to stop. I had been doing a lot of public speaking in different places, which involved all the work of, you know, arranging a a group, connecting, talking about themes, who the people are that will be there, and and then all the airline travel and accommodations and all of that. I was traveling right up until last March 12th. March 12th is my birthday. And so two years ago on March 12th, that was the day that the music stopped. It was very iffy about whether there was going to be air travel and, you know, borders closing and everything. With the inability to travel, all it did was make me focus. It put me in one place and I no longer had to think about, if you were to hire me for a group and and I came to where you live and spoke to your group, I tend to feel like you're paying for my time. And so I only spend the least amount of my of time on my own email or my own other stuff because I feel like I try to be fully present to whoever has engaged me. And then after that stop, I thought, well, then I have lots of time on my hands. I think I'll write another book. So I got Afterlife Interrupted Book Two written and I'm still anticipating that it doesn't look like I'll have very much travel for the next six months. Depends on how the virus and the pandemic and all of it plays out. But large groups, people are still reluctant to book hotel rooms and put down deposits and stuff for large gatherings yet. So I think I still have maybe the whole of this year to be hunkered down in Tucson, figuring out how to use my time well and I thought podcasting, learning to podcast is something I can do right now. It's a lot of fun. I hope you like it. 
Well, I'm sure that I will. I'm trying to make sure that I'm creating a podcast that I look forward to doing. You've had jobs in your life where you really weren't that excited to go to work, I suppose. I don't know. You're a pretty joyful person. I am, but not all jobs cultivate that. <laughs> yeah. and I just want to make sure that I don't create a monster. I don't want to create something for myself that I don't really thoroughly enjoy. So that's part of the calculus right now. And I'm playing around with it. St. Dominic, the founder of our order, is called the Joyful Friar. And I'm thinking of having that as a subtitle. I'm mostly joyful. And if I'm not feeling it naturally, I wait in joyful hope. I I think, well, today's not a great day for me, but very soon this is going to turn. <laughs> and it's going to be better. And so waiting in joyful hope is part of what I want my podcast to be about and, and how it overlaps with afterlife stuff and a lot of other things. I've always found you to be refreshing in the realm of Catholicism. Why is that? Do your listeners or viewers know how we know each other at all? No, I don't think so. You want to tell a little of that? Sure. You married me and my first husband. Yes. I consider myself a devout ex-Catholic, but so enjoyed listening to your preaching that when I knew that you were saying Mass, I would go to church with Tom and stay and listen to your homily mm -hmm. and then wait outside after that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my experience of Catholicism prior to that was very... I don't know if pedantic is the right word, but it was very like your ducks better be in a row and these mm -hmm. are the rules and you need to follow them. And if you don't, you're a terrible human being. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't believe that. I know. I have been a Catholic all my life, but as with anyone else, you have to make choices about It's not just automatic. It's not like my parents programmed me that I have to be this and nothing else. I decided early on one of the things I liked about being Catholic was that we're the largest membership organization in the world. There's 1.4 billion of us. And with the exception of Islam, I think Islam is a, about similar size. There's no other political organization or social organization or anything that that many people come together around. And unity is really important to me, trying to find oneness. And the opposite of the of the divisiveness that just is tearing at us right now in our country. And you see it in other countries in the world, too, where people are just fighting internally at levels that it just seems very upsetting to me. To and, me, too. And why? And, and it seems unnecessary. We know better. We, we don't always behave so badly and speak so ill of other people. We, we're all capable of better. And uh, anyway, I don't know whether you will find this. Uh, amazing or not, but I'm sort of sarcastic. <laughs> and you, you can stop laughing now. It, and when I was younger, it was much edgier. It took a few experiences to learn how hurtful that your sense of humor can be to other people before I learned to kind of temper it some. Sure. But in my you know late teens and early 20s, I saw all kinds of things about the Catholic Church I didn't like. And after a while, I began to feel like I was just somebody on the sidewalk watching the parade go by, critiquing the floats or the band, or the horses or whatever, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. And at some point, I just got tired of it. And I thought, dang it, why don't you just get in the parade and shut up? You know, <laughs> you know why don't you just give what you have to give and quit sniping at other people? And I love uh, that analogy. 
Yeah, I'm glad I did. I follow Jesus and he didn't wait for a perfect moment to incarnate and a perfect place and time and stuff. He just kind of jumped in and got busy. And anyway, that's the way I've kind of chosen to live my life. There is no perfect time. Uh, You just have now, that's all. But you can always make things better. There's just no reason why you can't leave the world a better place than you found it. But my parents were real big on that. Anything that came within our sphere, we were to improve it, make it better than we found it. It's a good thing to impart. Yeah, yeah. It's a lifestyle I like living. So in, I guess, first in the context of creating books, what is your biggest frustration? The getting started is the the most challenging part. Once I get started, I'm not really big on a topical outline. I can do something like the storyboard or an arc where I know I want to get there and this is how I want this to flow. I've had some help. A, a dear friend who sat down and in about a couple of hours time outlined my first afterlife book for me. I told her the stories I wanted to tell and why I wanted to tell them. And she just organized it for me and said, here's how to do it. Just fill in these categories. And that was really sweet. Nice. Sometimes I get frustrated because I want to control the pace of things. I want I want to make deadlines and always have things finished on time. And sometimes that just doesn't work. And then a lot of the rest of it has been, I just didn't know how to do a lot of things. I learned early on, the first book came out in 2011 when the move toward online print-on-demand publishing was just beginning. Kindles and um, you know e-readers in general were just beginning to come in about 10, 12 years ago. And it used to be that you had to get somebody, you had to get a literary agent and you had to get, that, that agent had to care about you and what you wrote. And then they had to pitch it and they were going to get 15% of any of the proceeds. And and then you get you were told to get, to expect 99 no's for every yes. All that gatekeeping and having to please people that don't even know you, I just thought that just doesn't sound like fun at all. And turned out my my younger sister has a publishing house. Uh, she has her own little publishing house. And she said, I can do it. I said, well, let's just do it together then. She's helped me produce all three books. And I didn't really have to sell the rights to my, you know, when 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 you sell your book to a publisher, you don't own it anymore because you sold it. And having the ability to self-publish means you can get your message out in the world and you can own it at the same time. And I like that. Yes, that is nice. Yeah. What do you wish, if anything, that people understood about your work or your path that they might not catch at first glance or if they're not terribly thoughtful? Well, my main message is that we all survive our deaths, that it, it really isn't a matter of religious belief or philosophy or anything. It's just physics, that we're already eternal beings. We're currently living one moment in our eternity. But sometimes I'm around people who feel like the best years are behind them. It's quite natural as people get older that they can be addressed in ways that presume that. For retired persons, they're often asked, what is it you used to do? Yes. Instead of asking, what are you going to do tomorrow? (laughs) So much focus on career instead of personhood. Yes. And I just want people to know that they are unlimited and they've got vast potential. They've got all kinds of possibilities in front of them. And if some of them have to wait because of physical infirmity or 
lack of resources of some kind that will, those are temporary circumstances. You're not always going to be slow or poor or whatever it is that you feel is holding you back. That's really my main message and how it all gets played out. I keep coming back to that. that and I'm really enjoying kind of late in life, a second career, helping people who have some religious training from which they've moved away, go back and kind of rediscover pearls. Was there anything in this that you recall or that feels right or that seems true? And might I help you reappropriate it in your current moment? Nice. Yeah. You know, that old image of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I've never gone back to that church again. Boom. But then you might have left behind some things that were sweet and were good. It's just that the the totality didn't work for you. Right. Uh, And I, I like helping people ponder and maybe explain things to them that were poorly explained and help them arrive at a a, a new uh, integration. Well, because not all teachers are good teachers. That's true. That's been your primary work, hasn't it? It has. 20 years teaching elementary school band. Uh When I first started doing this afterlife work, there was no manual to follow. I was just trying to help people that obviously needed to move from place to place. I began to understand that they, there was something like an invisible ceiling. They progressed and progressed, and they no longer needed what was provided at this level, and they were ready to move from this level. It, it has an analogy to the school system. You don't need to stay in the second grade. Once you've mastered all the things that are expected of second graders, it's time to move to the next level. And typically you do, mostly across the hall. or to, <laughs> to a And it's a little bit like that. And I found early on that People needed to be companioned in some way. And I would say, who would you like to have come for you? And sometimes they would take the luck of the draw. They would just say, well, I like the way this system operates and I'm always given what I need. And I'm not exactly sure who I need. Maybe I could just ask for the right person. And very often it was school teachers. It was, it was their third grade teacher. Way more women than men. Although occasionally there'd be a scout leader or or coach, or something like band. In a school, band, sports, and then stuff for people that were involved in scouting, those kind of things involve some community that's not often found in the other academic subjects. Yes. A lot more explicit collaboration. I I found sometimes it was like coaches, band teachers, or any adult that paid attention to you as a child and made you feel important And it felt different because family members are sort of supposed to do that. Right. Your mom or dad can tell you they love you and you feel like, well, that's because you're obligated to. (laughs) You have to. But then when somebody outside the family really esteems you and lets you know that, uh, it can make a lasting impression. So sometimes I found that these little crossings that were facilitated by your second grade teacher. Probably of all the things that you've talked about in the realm of the crossings, that one surprises me the least. (laughs) Yeah. There are moments outside of time when someone says something to you or does something for you that makes you feel really loved. Some of those just reverberate and stick with you. And uh, I found that this little population that I serve, all of them died traumatic deaths. And so Early on, I wanted to make sure I didn't make any sudden moves. You know, did you ever adopt a sheltered dog or cat? Yes. You might have to, you know, let them smell you or get down on the ground and, you know, be below their level or whatever. Let them understand that you uh, are not going to hurt them. 
uh, and with these people that I help, I had that attitude that like, I need to make sure that they uh, understand that I'm not the boss of them and that I'm here to help and I won't frighten. Later on, I began to learn that they sort of line up and they wait in line and they over they listen in on the ones that are ahead. And over time, I didn't really, really need to coach them into who they're going to choose. They pretty much arrived knowing who they wanted to come for them. Have you had survivors of any of the people who have passed see their people in your book and contact you? I've had that happen once and a great friendship has evolved out of it. One of the little categories that I deal with are people who died in a home invasion, oftentimes elders and more women than men. And I had an occasion where a person was related to a person who died in a home invasion and they ended up, I'm talking around it because I can't disclose their yeah, name. Yeah, oh no. But um, that happened, yes, once. But m- most of the time, they're not looking for me to get messages to relatives the way that they might with a medium. You know, or when people seek out mediumship, it's often because they want to exchange messages and such. That's not really what I do. But I've been asked more and more often about providing evidence full names, addresses, dates of death, stuff that could be that would be public records or whatever like that. And I've, I haven't felt that that was really my job. You don't stop in the middle of this work and start asking people to produce ID. And that could happen down the line. And if it did, I follow the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would have to let me know that that was the next part of my job. And I'm open to that possibility. But for right now, uh, I don't seek out proof or the ability to contact loved ones. No, I had just wondered if loved ones had seen, like happened to read the book and said, hey, I know who that person is. Hasn't happened yet. There are 13 stories in each of the two books. So 26 total that are in public out of about 400. There's lots more stories that could be told. And that hasn't happened yet. But I think it would be delightful if it did. Because they all have a happy ending, even though by definition, these people all died sudden violent deaths. So there's nothing happy about that. But, but the fact that they left their bodies and that they kept going and that they got what they needed and maybe can even say they're better than ever is a beautiful message to be able to convey. So I wouldn't mind doing that should that happen. How did you choose which 23 out of 400 or 26 out of 400? And the first book I wanted to show kind of the range and various demographics. I wanted a gender balance, for example, and I wanted some difference of race and place and age, you know, grandparents, children. That was kind of my organizing principle of that one. And then in the second one, with the help of my sister and a couple of other friends advising, we asked the question, what stories do we have that readers would find most helpful? Particularly when we use that word stuck in the subtitle of the first book, one question is, how can we help people not be stuck now? Maybe you've had a period of your life where you felt stuck. Of course. Is there anyone who hasn't? I I should think not. Where you feel like you've tried everything and nothing's working. And, And sometimes there are people that have that predicament for a long time and really begin to lose hope that it'll ever be any different. So we've tried to pick stories that show people that might have been that way for a time and who have come out the other end. Even if it took dying stuck, but being able to get moving even after they died. One of the things I've seen is the mental health delivery system in in this country is very hit and miss. Yes. 
many people only get their health care through their job. And then it might be an HMO that demands that, yes, you can have five or six 50-minute visits in group counseling. They limit, not it's not built around successful healing of a person. It's You have to get through your problems, but you have to do it on this schedule. As a pastoral counselor, a lot of people are frustrated with what access they've had to counseling and health, mental health care. And I find that in the afterlife, that drops off. There's no guesswork about medications. It's known what you need, and it can be made known to you according to the level that you're able to take it in. It's self-paced. It's sort of like a Montessori school. <laughs> You've taught for a long time, and you probably had to make students hit certain benchmarks in order to move through a system. And in the afterlife schools that I've seen, people work at their own pace and they're encouraged along the way and they're not shamed if they're not keeping up. Anyway, I, one of the things that people often ask me is how has it changed me, this work? And one thing is it's made me less judgmental. One of the things that that the people that I've helped in this ministry have told me again and again is it's just so delightful to be in a place where nobody judges anybody else harshly. Everyone treats each other with respect. You never, ever are disparaged. That's made me want to live that way now. It's so easy to wake up in the morning to carping criticisms of everything and want to take sides and gripe and grumble and stuff. And it's just made me want to love everybody all the time and not let myself get carried in the undertow of all this harshness. It is quite the undertow. Yeah. I feel like it's worse than it was before, but maybe I'm just more aware. I don't know. Me too. Uh, and I'm older and I just feel like I've all, and I've only lived in this country, but I've never seen us be so unkind to each other at such, such depth. So I, I try to again, be a joyful friar that in my sphere says it doesn't need to be this way. And, and I keep coming back to truth too. It's not okay to call something false true just because you can get together with a whole lot of other people that will do it too. No, false is still false, even if it's a whole crowd of people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> something false, it's still false. Anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like it when I can help people be free. And part of that is uh, exercising their will and their ability to choose. And sometimes that means going against the grain, swimming upstream, you know, <laughs> something. It is fascinating and sad how kindness is swimming upstream so often. But it's also, I don't know, infectious. You know, if you do an unexpected kindness, it often breeds more kindness. Yes. You know? I've seen in the afterlife work, maybe you've seen it in your teaching career, that people often learn best from peers. And as soon as anybody in the afterlife work that I've done has mastered anything that they were struggling with, they're uh, encouraged to turn around and find somebody who they could assist in that same thing. Very often, it gives them a sense of uh, empowerment, pride that they have something to offer to another and it, it can open up dreams, imagination. If I can do this, I wonder, even the very first guy that I helped, that Ray was his name, all those years ago, 25 years ago, he just wanted to greet his wife when she came and I can't the way I am. And once we got him to a point where he would calm down, I just said, I think the problem, Ray, is that every time you talk about her, you sound like a caveman. Like, if you do get to be there, you're going to grab her by her hair and drag her in. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't like that, but 
I said, you don't have to like it. You don't have to talk to me anymore either. But this is what I'm hearing. And afterwards, when we asked his permission to use the story, he gave us a little follow-up. And he said, after I learned how to be a greeter for my wife, I thought, I would really like to know more about this. He said, I didn't like school and it didn't like me. But they were always teaching me things I didn't want to know. But now I know something that there is there is something I'd like to know more about. I'd like to know more about how to help people cross over. So he went to school to learn how to do that. I love it when people see a new possibility in their life and get excited about something that was out of their reach earlier. Yes. And I saw that on a different level, but all my years of teaching. Sure. That's probably why you stayed at it so long. Part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that I missed that you want to add? Are we near the end? We are. Okay. I prefer to be contacted through my website and not any other way. I have a YouTube channel with lots of stuff on it and people can comment there or on LinkedIn or Facebook Messenger and stuff. And it's just too dizzying. If you want me to contact you, just email me from my website. I'm very, very responsive to that. And there are some things that I don't do. Like I mentioned, I don't provide messages to loved ones. And sometimes people, when you talk about anything about spirits and priests, people think about exorcism and demons and stuff. And that's not my line either. If there's a demon in your house, I'm not the guy to contact. (laughs) I sometimes will do like one Zoom session with people to get them unstuck. And I tell them I'm more the tow truck driver. I'll get you out of the ditch, but I'm not going to follow you down the road. I might be able to send you in a new direction. I think that's my charism. I don't do like sequential spiritual direction or counseling online, but I do one-on-one little consults. And I enjoy that. I meet people from all over the world and all different life contexts. Excellent. It sounds amazing, actually. I would never have thought this would be where I'd be at almost 66, but it's a great place to be. What is your website URL for listeners? It is my name, Nathan Dash. Castle, so N A T H A N dash C A S T L E, Nathan dash Castle dot com. And then by going there in the upper left, there's the little envelope icon, create an email. And on the upper right, there's especially YouTube, there's Facebook and stuff, but the, the YouTube, I'm proud of it because it's finally organized for the longest <laughs> time. Well, it was an online dump, you know, just an, it looked like your grandmother's attic or something, just a bunch of stuff thrown around. And now it's not. That's one of the things that happened during the pandemic is I got it organized and I'm proud of the material that's there. Because I'm a priest, there's a lot of homilies. There's a lot of uh, Bible study material, stuff on the angels, different things. But anyway, nathan-castle.com is the place to contact me. Excellent. And I will put that in the show notes also for people who are listening and not writing it down. And um, I think that's all. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's great fun. It it was so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Ordinary Chaos is written, produced, edited, and all the things by me, he. The music was created by Keith Kelly. You can find show notes and learn more about the podcast, about Keith, or about me at OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. As always, Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. Scroll down and click support the podcast.